Good morning, everyone. I haven't met you yet, Charlie, but when I heard that your name was Charlie, I thought, that guy has a great name, <laughs> at least this much I know. But it's really a delight to be here with you all. And so before we go to the Word, I'd like to pray. But if you could turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. I'm going to start with you in chapter 2, but we're going to wake, work our way to chapter 11 and try to camp out a little bit in chapter 11. But um, the first text I'll actually land on is chapter 2. So let me pray, and then we'll get into the message for the day. Our God and Father, we celebrate the fact that you are faithful. We rejoice in the fact that you are faithful. From eternity past, you have been faithful every single moment of every single day up to this point. Right now, right this very moment, you are faithful. And into eternity future, you will be faithful forever and ever and ever and ever. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You yourself are the great rock of our lives. And one of the great ways you display that is by showing, demonstrating your faithfulness to your people over and over and over again. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us today, not only to understand in our minds a little bit more about your faithfulness, but to be captured in our hearts by the fact that you are our faithful Father. Lord, there are needs, there are hopes, there are dreams, there are shattered dreams sitting in the room today and online as well, I'm sure, and people need to hear a word from you. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would use your word to minister to your people and for what you will do in us and through us. We thank you and praise you in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Great is your faithfulness, O God, our Father. There is no shadow of turning with you. You change not. Your compassions, they fail not. As you have been, so forever you will be. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Those familiar words, some might even say sacred words, were written in the form of a poem first by a man named Thomas Chisholm in the early 1900s. And then they were put to music in 1923 by one of his good friends in the Lord. They often would brood over the word together and pray together. His name was William Runyon. Thomas was born in Franklin, Kentucky in 1866. He put his faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 26, and he lived the simple life of a man of faith in that area until his dying day. He had a real passion for the Lord, and so for a season he tried to be a pastor. But he had some physical ailments that plagued him until the day of his death, and for some reason he was not able to continue in the ministry. He resigned less than a year into his pastorate. And he lived the rest of his life as an insurance salesman and as a simple man of faith in Franklin, Kentucky. Not far from where my wife actually uh, went to college. So she's actually been in Franklin, Kentucky. She was encouraged to hear the story that it had occurred there. He was not a pastor. He was not a missionary. He was not a full-time Christian worker. He was not uh, impressive in the way that we usually think of when we think about Christian biographies and such. He was a simple man of faith who throughout the daily uh, ebb and flow of his life, though, discovered something deep inside of his heart, not just in his mind, but deep inside of his heart. He discovered this truth that God is faithful. This is a truth that marked his life. And while some of the great hymns we know and love were the fruit of a a remarkable experience with God, where the Lord brought somebody through suffering, like, like it is well with my soul, 
or other hymns are the fruit of a, a time when uh, the Lord revealed something unusual in the Word of God to somebody and, and then gave that person by His Spirit the ability to write poetry that, that the people of God could then sing generation after generation. This hymn here was inspired, quote, by the simple realization that God is at work in our lives on a daily basis. I want you to let that sink in for a second. This hymn title is grand, is it not? Great is thy faithfulness. That was born of the simple realization that God is actually at work in our lives every single day. And I just want to submit to you that that kind of insight, it's not complicated intellectually, but we have a brother here in Thomas Chisholm who was gripped by this reality in his life and out came the poetry. Just simple daily life with God. Here's something that he wrote about the hymn. He wrote, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me until now. By this time he was an old man. However, I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. Sometimes Christians are prone to a little bit of exaggeration. We use language that might be a little bit above what we're actually thinking or feeling or having insight about. But in this case, I don't think our brother Thomas was exaggerating one single bit. I think truly in the depths of his heart, he was filled with an astonishing gratefulness. And this hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is just a small part of the overflow of what he felt in his heart. So today, I want to meditate with you on the faithfulness of God that maybe just a little bit more we'll be able to share in our brother's joy-filled wonder. That's really my hope for today, that the faithfulness of God will become more of a present reality to us. Maybe for some of us this will be a great insight. Maybe for others of us it will just be one more step down the road. But I pray with all my heart that we'll come to share in our brother's wonder today. So I want to begin with you, as I said a minute ago, in Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to trace out the theme of faith just for a few minutes and then we'll, this will lead us to chapter 11 where we'll spend a little bit more time and then close our time together for today. When it comes to the practical life of those who believe in Jesus Christ, I think that one of the main thrusts of the letter to the Hebrews is that we must persevere in the love of Christ by placing our faith in Christ. We must keep on keeping on in Christ by believing in Him and trusting in Him and clinging to Him and listening to Him and walking with Him. We persevere in the love of Christ by placing our faith in Christ. And if for some reason we fail to do that, if for some reason we fail to keep on keeping on in the things of Christ, we should not have hope that we are saved or that we have ever known Jesus at all. I believe with all of my heart in the, in the doctrine of eternal security. I celebrate that doctrine. If it were not for the eternal security of believers, I would have been lost a long time ago because if it was up to me to stay saved, I would never have been able to stay saved. And I could probably get some amens in here right now to that. I believe in this doctrine with all my heart, but I also believe that it's possible for people to think that they're walking with Christ when they're actually playing a game and then come to the end of their days when they stand before the judge and hear those, those frightful words from Jesus, I never knew you. 
You used my name, you did things in my name, but you were not walking with me. I, I never actually knew you. It is imperative for believers to persevere in the love of Christ by placing our faith in Christ day by day by day by day until we see Jesus face to face. The author has been pressing on this theme since chapter 2, so I'm just going to go through a handful of verses. We could spend a lot more time on this, but I'm just going to try to quickly trace out a theme here. So chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, in other words, based on the glorious vision of Jesus that he laid out in chapter 1, on the basis of that, we believers must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And then he asks a very piercing question. How shall we escape from the rightful wrath of God if we neglect such a great salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, he's trying to help us understand that while Jesus is gracious and glorious, uh, uh, the matter of our relationship to him is no child's play. It's not a joking matter. It's not a small thing. He's saying, dear people of God, you must persevere in the love of Christ by placing your faith in Christ. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 that Pastor Tyler read for us a little bit ago. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And I'll tell you from the way the Greek is constructed there, the evil is the unbelief there. These are not two separate things. The evil is the lack of faith in the heart. In Greek, the word unbelief is simply just the opposite of faith. It's not faith. The evil not faithing heart is what is what he's saying here. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Christians, we must persevere in the love of Christ by placing our faith in Christ day by day by day by day. Chapter 4, I'm going to pick out three verses. Verses 1, 11, and 14. Verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He's warning the people of God to persevere in the things of God. Verse 11. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that none of you may fall by the same sort of disobedience as the Israelites who failed to believe in the desert. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast, cling tightly to our confession. And what's our confession? That Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us persevere in the love of Christ by placing our faith in Christ. The author keeps building his case in chapter 5. And when you're reading Hebrews at full speed, when you get to the middle of chapter 5, it's actually kind of breathtaking, a little stunning, because he he halts his argument about as fast as a freight train just coming to a sudden stop. It's a little bit jarring when you're reading Hebrews at full speed. But he halts his argument because in the middle of chapter 5, he tells the people that are first receiving his letter that he's very concerned about them. He's concerned that they have become bored with God and with the things of God. These people have not completely forsaken their faith, but they're just sort of slowly drifting away from the things of God in Christ, just like a boat that's lost its anchor in the harbor, and they're floating out to sea, and he's concerned for them. 
And he's really concerned that they have become so dull in their hearts, that's the language that he uses, that they will be bored by the absolutely glorious things he's about to share with them in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm sure you know that Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 are some of the most stunning, glorious chapters in all of the Bible, but they take a little effort to understand. And he's concerned that they were wrapped up in their flesh and dying to the things of God, dying to the the ability to perceive the beauty of the things of God, that they would uh, fall asleep, so to speak, that they would drift off, that they would not hear the things he was about to say. And so he issued a very stern rebuke to them at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. But then, as he often does throughout the letter, he also adds this encouragement. If you look at chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, Though we speak in this way, in other words, in a loving, fairly harsh discipline, way of discipline, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We believe that you are truly in Christ, is what he's saying. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the very end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Please pay careful attention to that last line. That's a very important line. One of the antidotes to becoming sluggish and drifting away from Christ and the things of Christ is to imitate the faith and patience of those who are inheriting the promises of God. And that last line there in verse 12 actually is the seed that later rises up to become Hebrews 11. That's the seed right there. In fact, I want to show you something. You could read Hebrews in this way. You could read up to chapter 6, verse 12, and then skip immediately to chapter 11, and you wouldn't even notice that anything was missing. If you had never read Hebrews before and you came to 6.12 and went right to chapter 11, you would think that it was a perfectly seamless and logical letter. Let me read for you that way to show you what I mean. Starting in chapter 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then he goes on to talk about some of those that we ought to be imitating. Do you see that? The perfectly seamless, logical sense. But if the author was to write the letter that way, this letter would also be tragically false and misleading because one hugely important thing would be missing, and that would be the gospel. And above all things, we cannot miss the gospel. Amen? We cannot miss the gospel. If the author was to leave out chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, we would definitely get the impression that persevering in the faith of Christ is something that we have to do in our flesh for Him. We would definitely get the impression that, that staying in right relationship with, with God is essentially our duty and not essentially something that God has done for us. But by inserting chapter 7 through 10 into the discussion... The author most powerfully shows that persevering in the love of Christ by faith in Christ is not about us doing something for him. It's about resting in the great thing he has already done for us. Amen? 
Persevering in the love of Christ by faith in Christ is not about making some great sacrifice for him. It's fully embracing the all-sufficient sacrifice he made for us. Persevering in the love of Christ by placing our faith in Christ is actually depending upon the faith that Christ has exercised for us. When Jesus Christ was a man on this earth, he exercised faith in his Father every single day. Trusting in him, listening to him, believing him, following him all the way to the horror of death upon a cross. And he never for a single millisecond turned his heart or his mind away from the Father. Beloved, he now imputes his faith to us. To live by faith is not to be a perfect human being on this earth. If that's the qualifications, (laughs) I'm lost. Big time. Living by faith on this earth is resting in the fact that Christ has exercised his faith for me and he wants to teach me to exercise faith in our Father every single day until the day I see him face to face. That's what gospel faith looks like. In fact, the author has told us pretty clearly in those chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 that the first covenant is essentially marked by these words. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you read Exodus very carefully, you'll see that exactly three times, not once, not five times, not ten times, but exactly three times, God spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to the people, the people said to Moses to say back to God, all that the Lord has said, we will do. All that the Lord has said, we will do. All that the Lord has said, we will do. So how'd that turn out? We will do it, we will do it. Those are essentially the words of the first covenant. And we will do it always ends up in never going to happen, doesn't it? Because we don't even have the ability to keep our own resolutions, much less the commandments of God. That will just simply never work. And so in chapter 8, the author quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Every word of it. It's the longest quote of the Old Testament anywhere in the New Testament. And it is essentially the legal language of the second covenant. And I'm not going to read that whole passage for you, but if you just look at it right now on your own, you will see that over and over again, it is marked by these words from the Lord. I will do it, says the Lord. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will do it for you, says the Lord. This is what the second covenant is marked by. It's marked by what God has done for us. So when the author is pressing on us to persevere in the love of Christ by placing our faith in Christ, he's essentially saying, just keep looking at the Lord. Remember what the Lord has done. Never forget what the Lord has done. Rest yourselves in him, people of God. With this in mind, he does go on to issue another pretty severe rebuke in chapter 10. It's among, I think, the severest rebukes in the New Testament. But that's not because he doesn't have hope for the people of God that originally received his letter or for the people of God that are gathered here now. It's because he loves us enough to help us do whatever it takes to wake up to the things of God. I don't know about you, but I've been walking with the Lord a while, and I still am like a little child sometimes. I need a smack upside the head to say, wake up, son, eyes on Christ. And that's what the author is doing. But at the end of chapter 10, he reminds them that they did indeed have genuine faith in God, that they were indeed the people of God, and that God would indeed cause them to persevere all the way to the end. They would not be like those who shrink back from their faith. They would not be like those who perish. 
The first readers of Hebrews had the need to persevere in the love of Christ by placing their faith in Christ, and beloved, so do we. This is a living word to us today, just as much as it was all those years ago when people first received it. And I hope you can see that this train of thought in Hebrews puts faith in an extremely important place. This makes faith among the most valuable things in our lives. Paul says it comes down to faith, hope, and love, right? And he says that the greatest of these is love. And there's no way I'm going to say anything but amen to that. But it's a real close race at the end. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things where they have to uh, look at it on the on the video just to see how close it is exactly because faith, hope, and love in many ways are, are inter, interchangeable ways of saying the same thing. To put our faith in God is simply to express our love to God and receive his love for us. To put our faith in God is to put all of our hope in God and receive the hope that he has given to us. Beloved, faith is among the most valuable assets in this life. And I'm here to encourage you today to get it at any cost. It's more important than land. It's more important than money. It's more important than cars, prestige, power. It's more important than politics. It's more important than good looks. Thanks be to God when you come out looking like this. It's more important than anything we pursue on this earth. If you're passionate about getting anything, get faith. Get faith. Get faith. Nothing in this world is so valuable. And I think this is why the author now full force turns his discussion to this topic in chapter 11 and gives an entire pretty long chapter to this topic. So let's read verses 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 2 and talk just for a few minutes about what the author has to say there. He writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Literally, that means they received the testimony from the Lord. So what is faith? Well, much can be said about faith. Books have been written about it. The Bible has a lot more to say about it than what's right here. But I just want to stick very close to what's right here. And the author here defines it in two interrelated ways. First of all, he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And now, as those who believe in God, the question then becomes, what is it that we hope for? And of course, just like people in the world, the truth of the matter is that we hope in all kinds of different things. But ideally speaking, as the people of God, we ought to be hoping in the purposes of God, the promises of God, and the plans of God. We ought to be hoping in the will of our Father, the words of our Father, and the the ways of our Father. That's what faith is. When God expresses his will about something, what faith is, is a deep assurance that he is willing the right things, that he is willing good things, that he is willing life-giving things, God-glorifying things. That's what faith is. It's the assurance that God is right. It is essentially trusting in him. When God reveals his words about any given subject, faith is having the assurance that his words are true and lead us in the right way, even when the entire world is saying opposite things. For, for example, right now, with regard to gender, marriage, and sexuality, the world, the entire world, it seems, has arrayed itself against the very simple, plain, clear, life-giving word of God, has it not? 
But we as God's people, hopefully not arrogantly, but we cling to the things our Father has said because we have an assurance that what he said is right and true and life-giving to us. And one day that will be proven. One day the mouths of fools will be silenced and God alone will be shown to be right. That's what faith is. It's putting our hope, it's putting our trust in the words of our Father. And when God acts in the world, when he displays his ways before us, faith is simply believing that the way he does what he says he's going to do is actually the best way to do it. I have to admit that sometimes I've sort of second-guessed the Lord and thought to myself, boy, I wonder if that was exactly the best way that X, Y, or Z could be done, as though God needed my counsel, right? It's kind of silly and arrogant of us to want to counsel God to do something better. I was thinking last night as I was praying about a bit I heard from George Carlin years ago where he was basically railing against God for putting our feet in the wrong direction and thought he had a better idea for the design of the way our feet should be pointing, which is really stupid to begin with, but it's also kind of uh, illustrative of what we all do. We tend to question God. But what faith does is say, no, the way that our God works his will and words out in practical life is the best way that it could happen. We may not understand it. It may confuse and baffle us at times, but we trust the Lord. We trust his ways as much as we trust his will. Beloved, that's what faith is about. Faith is not centered on us. Faith is centered on God. Second, the author says that faith is the conviction of things not seen. And if you'll think about it, this is just a logical extension of what he's already said because often the things we're having to have assurance about have not yet come to pass, right? Like when the Lord says that one day Jesus Christ will explode upon the sky in the fullness of his glory so that every single eye will see and every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe that that's true. We have a deep inner conviction that's not coming from our flesh, but that's coming from the Spirit of God that says, I trust him. Yep, it's been 2,000 years. And from our way of counting, that's a long time. Yep. Some days I don't believe it quite as much as other days, but something inside of me, the Holy Spirit stirring in me, working in me, will not let allow me to let go of this hope that I have that one day I'm going to get to see my Savior face to face along with his people from every tribe and tongue and nation around the world. Beloved, that's what faith is about. It's about looking away from ourselves and toward God. My wife Kim and I have been through a lot in the last couple of years, and one day she was pretty shook by some things we were facing, and I just felt moved by the Lord. It wasn't something I really pre-thought. I just sort of lovingly grabbed her by the shoulders, looked her in the eye, and said, Honey, eyes on Christ. Eyes on Christ. So that has become a thing for us. We just abbreviate it and text to each other pretty often. E-O-C. E-O-C. Because sometimes she's at work and she can't read <laughs> A whole text, right? But I'll say E-O-C, or she'll say it back to me. Eyes on Christ. Eyes on Christ. That's what a life of faith is about. It's not about conjuring up feelings of faith. It's about looking to the God who is faithful. That's what it's about. About 20 years ago now, I was in the mountains of Northern California where I was pastoring a church. I would go out to pray for a lengthy time on Thursdays, and I was up there praying one day, and Hebrews 11 was my food that day. Hebrews 11, 1 to 2, to be even more specific. And the Lord was opening my eyes to 
many things and I was moved by what I was seeing, but also I felt a little bit discouraged. And so I, I, I remember exactly where I was seated. I don't think I could remember how to get there anymore, but I remember the scene of where I was seated. And I remember just saying to the Lord, thanking him for what I had seen in the word that day. And I remember saying to him, Lord, I want so much to have childlike faith like this, but I don't know how. I remember telling him that I had hoped in so many things throughout my life to that point that had did not come to pass as I thought they would or did not come to pass at all. And I just felt afraid to exercise faith. Like I wasn't sure how to have the kind of hope that I saw the scripture was clearly calling forth in the people of God. And then having expressed my heart to the Lord, I, I just sat and waited on him. I don't remember how long I waited. It was definitely more than five minutes and less than 30 minutes in there somewhere. I was just sat in the silence of the mountains and listened. And at some point, I, I hesitate to say God spoke to me because those are very strong words, but I did hear a sentence just pop into my mind that's helped me throughout the years. So I'll commend that sentence to you now, and you can decide its origin <laughs> between you and the Lord. But the sentence came to my mind, Charlie, you can be sure of what you hope for when you hope for what is sure. You can be sure of what you hope for when you hope for what is sure. And as I sat there with the Lord over the next couple of hours processing that, I just realized that in some ways I was still immature in my faith and I, was in, and I still am immature in my faith and I'm still in part putting my hope in things that I'm not supposed to put my hope in as a believer. But our father is a, a patient parent, is he not? And he's just slowly teaching me to tilt my eyes toward him to tilt my heart toward him, to tilt my hope toward him. And the more I sat there in that mountain that day thinking about it, I realized that the only thing sure in this life are the purposes and promises and plans of God. Everything else is sand. The great kingdoms of this world, as immovable as they seem, are just sand. And one day every one of them, including our own, will fall away until the kingdom of God alone prevails. The great financial systems of this world that seem so immovable are not immovable. We learned that a little bit in 2008. We might learn that a lot more in the coming years here. I don't know, but one day we'll see that the only asset that's truly valuable forever are the assets of God. That's it. Relationships and jobs that we feel like could never be broken, could never go away. Oh, yes, they can. And they can go away in a breath. Like it would shock you sometimes how quick that ended. How, how did that happen? Because obviously there's nothing wrong with a job or with a relationship, but in itself it's sand. Life itself is fragile, is it not? A couple weeks ago, my wife was walking along in the course of her job and tripped and fell and, and broke her hip pretty bad. She won't be walking normally for three months now, but they said she'll be able to return to full strength. So our, our, our hope is high that she'll make a full recovery. But we're not 30 anymore. <laughs> we're not 70, but we're in our 50s, and we know this is going to affect her for a while. In a heartbeat, her health situation changed just like that. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about and, and have much more... Um, you know, severe stories of this type of thing. Beloved, everything in life is sand. And if we hope in sand, we're going to get what we're hoping for. Your hope is only going to last as long as the thing you're putting your hope in. That's it. So if you can learn by the grace of God to slowly but surely put your hope in the purposes, promises, plans of God, then your hope will be immovable, certain. Let the winds come. Let the waves come. Let the storms blow. Maybe it will toss you about, but it will not shake your hope. 
Because your hope is God himself. Your hope is not in the fleeting things of life. Amen? With all of that in mind, let me just give you a real simple definition of faith. The way I've been thinking about it for years now and it's been very helpful to me. Faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. That's what faith is. Faith is not a feeling that we have to conjure up or like the word of faith people say. The word of faith people teach that faith is like a force and words are the container of the force. And so you release the force by speaking out faith, right, and creating things, creating things that are usually in their terms comfortable for you, a nicer car, a nicer house, things like that. But that's, that's a farce. That's a lie. That's not what faith is. Faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. Beginning, middle, and end, faith is about God. People throughout the centuries, like our dear brother Thomas Chisholm, who wrote Great is Thy Faithfulness, this is the lesson that they learned. That faith is about trusting in God. And I'll tell you something. If you can learn to just depend on the Lord to teach you this childlike faith, you can stand with the giants of the faith because the great secret is that there actually are no giants of the faith. There are normal, broken men and women just like us who learned to put their trust in the infinitely giant faithfulness of God. That's what there are. Somebody somewhere along the way decided to call Hebrews chapter 11 the hall of faith. I'm sure you're familiar with that. So it's like you walk into Canton, Ohio, and look, there's Noah, and there's Abraham, and Sarah, and Rahab, and all these great people. One problem with that is when you go to a hall of fame, usually these are people who do things you could never think of doing, right? They're people that are beyond us. But I think that calling this chapter the hall of faith puts the focus in the wrong place. This chapter ought to be called the hall of the faithfulness of God, because that's what this chapter is about. Every single story told in Hebrews, and I've spent a long time studying and teaching this chapter, I could prove to you what I'm saying. Every single story in Hebrews is of a man or of a woman who said, God spoke to me, I believed in him, and he was faithful to his words. I discovered that God is faithful. Then everybody in chapter 11 and more gather together in chapter 12, and they become what? They become the cloud of witnesses, right? And those cloud of witnesses are cheering us on, and they are not saying, press on, you can do it. They are saying, press on, God is faithful. Press on, God is faithful. Beloved, hear the word of God. Press on, God is faithful. Persevere in your faith. You're going to discover the faithfulness of God deep inside your heart. You're going to dis- discover something more of the astonishing gratefulness that our brother Thomas Chisholm felt for the Lord. And all of Hebrews 11 is custom designed to lead us in that way. I wish we had more time to get into the details of this glorious chapter, but since we don't, I want to encourage you, if you have time in your own personal uh, devotionals or with your families or small groups to just spend some time in Hebrews chapter 11, just meditating on what I've shared with you today and meditating on the rest of what's there because I believe that God wants to build our faith. And right now, the way the world is going, the best gift that we could give to the world as a people of God is to fix our eyes upon God and learn to live by faith. It's the best gift that we can give them. Because the people of God, if our ears are attuned to the Lord, we'll know when to speak and when to be quiet. We'll know when to act and when to wait on the Lord. We'll know what to say, when to say it, how to say it. 
Sometimes we'll have a word of, of, of loving invitation to the Lord. Other times, like John the Baptist, we'll have a word of severe rebuke. But the way we'll know the difference between the two and the right moment to say which is by simply listening to the Lord. It's by being near to the Lord. This was the key to Jesus' life. He only said what he heard the Father saying. Why? Because he was a man of faith. He was spending intimate time with the Father. And this is the life he wants for us too. So, beloved, let the Lord stoke the fires of your love for his faithfulness in your life as well. I don't know what's happening in each of your lives right now. I don't know what the... Uh, long-term or short-term future of sojourners churches I, I, and I mean that really Tyler and all, I haven't talked all that much in recent days so I'm out of touch with all that but I, I know one thing and that is that God is faithful and he's here to help you not only see that but to feel that for yourself if you're here today and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ or if you're listening online and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ I don't believe it's an accident that you're here I cannot believe that 35 years ago this month, the Lord drew me to himself. I was a severe drug addict from 11 years old until 20 years old. I dropped out of school at 14 years old. I left home at 14 years old. I was not a recreational drug user. I was a hopeless drug addict. By the time I got saved, I was suicidal. The only reason I didn't kill myself is because I didn't have the guts to do it. And Jesus Christ met me there and saved my life. And for the last 35 years, he has been proving to me day by day by day by day that he is faithful. And I'm here to tell you today that if you'll put your faith in him, he will show you the same thing. So that this whole subject will not just become something that's talked about in church. It will become your life. It will become the joy of your life. You, like me, will probably say one day, Oh, sing that hymn at my funeral. Great is thy faithfulness. Sing of the faithfulness of God all the days of my life. So bow the knee before Jesus today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness to us. From eternity past to the present moment to eternity future, you are faithful. I thank you for sending me here today, for getting the joy to bring a word and also to hear a word uh, already through the service and now through the communion table. Thank you for giving me the joy of giving and receiving from this precious people of God. And I pray that together we would go just a little bit farther down the road in what it means to put all of our trust in your faithfulness. And for how you will work in us and how you will work through us, we give you all of the praise, all of the worship, all of the glory in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.